your Bibles to Colossians 2, if you brought it with you. And uh, if not, he will have it up on screen. But as you're turning there, we are continuing forward through our work in Colossians. I think we finished the second chapter today. And uh, it's, it's been fun going through the first part of this book, as we've talked about in the past. As Paul writes letters, one thing you need to know about Paul, whenever he writes, is he usually spends the first part of his letters talking about what Christ has already done for us. Right? The work that he has done, the beautiful thing he has done. And then usually the second part of the letter, it's our response. Okay, um, so we're just now leaving the part which is it's it's basically discussing what Jesus Christ has already done for us, and we're about to shift into the portion where he talks about what that means for us, how that pertains to us at work, in marriage, at home, and family. But uh, you know, I before we get into this, I've been have you ever just heard of something and been so intrigued and fascinated about it that you just start researching it all week? That's what I've I have done that all week with this syndrome. Some of you have already heard of it. I've heard about it a long time ago. I didn't know much about it. I heard about it this week. I thought, man, I'm looking that up. That's bugging me. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. Have you all ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome before? If you haven't, this is going to blow your mind. Okay, Stockholm Syndrome, I'm not going to go into the history of why it's called that or where it started, all that stuff. It's real boring. The real thing that Stockholm Syndrome is, is something that happens when people are taken captive. And it could be through terrorism, it could be through hostage, you could be kidnapped. But in the part of the kidnapping or the hostage taking where there is someone taken captive, there is a bond built between the captor and the captive. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, there, there are pictures, there's film of famous bank robberies, uh, famous hostage situations where as the people are being freed from captivity, on the way out, they're, they're hugging and they're kissing the ones that held them at gunpoint a week earlier or a week and a half earlier. And it's in, that blows my mind. I don't even get that. You know? And they say there's a few reasons that that happens. One is, is just after a certain amount of time, they start to understand the principles and the ideals of the people that took them hostage. So whether it was terrorism or, or I, don't even, I wouldn't even begin to know. But hey, we've been in a bank vault all week and you've been spouting this garbage, but now we believe. You know, stick it to the man or whatever. And so they come out and now their ideas have changed. Now their philosophies have changed to match the ones that took them captive. Another one is that sometimes they just feel guilty because they think, you know, I mean, besides the fact that they're taking me captive right now and they have a gun, they're, they're pretty nice persons. I mean, they're persons. They're pretty nice people. They, I mean, they really aren't that bad. And so they feel guilty because they're going to get punished as soon as the cops break that thing up. They're going to jail. On a good day, they're going to jail. And they feel so bad about that that they develop this bond and this loyalty to them. But the one thing that researchers found that I found most intriguing is that many times the captives, they find so much significance and just a wealth of value and worth and identity in being a captive that once they were freed from captivity... They yearned to be back with the captor. They yearned to be back with the one that took them captive. I found that interesting. And listen, this isn't something that happens once out of every hundred situations. The FBI database, they've collected all of the results from all of the times that they've handed terrorism or hostage taking. 30%, up to 30% of people who've been kidnapped or held hostage suffer from Stockholm Syndrome. That's amazing. 
So anyway, I don't get all of that, okay? But I've never been taken hostage either, you know? I'm not worth a whole lot of money or anything like that. But the reason I bring that up is because as we're reading this work that Paul has written to the church of Colossae, he's dealing a little bit with Stockholm Syndrome of sorts. He is. He doesn't get it either. He's having a hard time with this. Just before we read the passage, I just want to remind you, the church at Colossae, it's a young church. It's a vibrant church. Um, It's made up basically of two main groups of people. There are other little smatterings of different cultures and things like that. But the main two groups, you have what I call the hardliners on one side. These are the stalwart Jewish, very firm background in Judaism. And their previous way of getting God's acceptance was through laws and regulations and statutes, special diets, special days, things like that. It was all very works-oriented, right? Now, yeah, so you have the hardliners over here. The other group were the hippies, right? You have the local hippies, and it was all about secret knowledge and fuller understanding. And that's where Gnosticism was born, was right there in the, in the Lycus Valley, right next to that church. And so it's a totally different thing. I know I say the word hippie a lot. Listen, I'm not, that's not a demeaning thing. I love hippies. My, I married one. My wife's a little bit of a hippie. And so if you're a hippie, don't be offended. If you have hippies that are friends, we love them at Legacy Church. Bring your hippie friends. But you, you either have hardliners or you have hippies. Okay? And now everyone that came into being a Christian in that church at Colossae, so they were born again by the gospel in community, for the gospel, right? That's what's going on. But the deal is, is they were coming out of these ways of life. They, they, they're an ex-hippie or they're an ex-hardliner. And some of those things, the ways of life that they used to live are very hard for them to let go of. Very difficult for them to shed. Even though they've been broken free from captivity, like Stockholm Syndrome, they go back to where they found their wealth of identity and significance and worth. It's hard to get rid of some of the things that we've carried with us, isn't it? I want to talk a little bit more today. I mean, we've talked about hippies in the past, and Kevin did a great job a couple weeks ago. You need to get that online if you, if you didn't hear it. I want to talk about hardliners again. And I did it last week. This is actually the second part of, of a two-parter, you know, dealing with legalism. And the reason being is because in Knoxville, we don't. when people say Knoxville, they don't really think hippie. They think hardliner. They do. I mean, here in the South, we deal with trying to follow laws and rules and regulations and statutes. Being a legalist is more of a temptation for us in the Deep South than being a hippie. Um, being a Pharisee is something that Christians deal with in the South a lot more than they might deal with it in some other places. I don't know, but I just know from being in the South, growing up in the South and living here, we should focus more on being a hardliner. And so that's what I wanted to talk about today. Because as legalists, we get a lot of our worth, and I'm saying us in plural because we're all legalists, we get a lot of our worth and value and significance from what we do for God. And even though we've been broken free from trying to perform and jump through hoops, even though we've been freed from that, just like the Pharisees, like Stockholm Syndrome for us, we return to those things that once held us captive because we've built a bond through a deep sense of identity and value. This is what Paul is dealing with here in, in Colossae. 
This is what he's dealing with here. So just I wanted to kind of prep up what this scripture passage means. In Colossians 2.16, this is what it says. I'm going to read it to you. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all referring to things that perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. Now these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and a severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's a lot. That's a lot. And like every other passage we've done in Colossians so far, you could spend a month on that as well. There's a lot in there. But what Paul is doing right here is he's continuing the challenge. Last week he said, stop being taken captive. He said, stop being fooled before. Here he's saying, stop being judged by these sly heretics that have slipped in and put up a gospel that's not the gospel that I preached, but something else where it's not just Jesus alone, but it's Jesus with other things added to Jesus, things smaller than Jesus added to Jesus. Stop being, stop being sold under that stuff. It's a sham. So Paul's ticked a little bit. He's frustrated, right? Because they're not buying into the gospel as being adequate for them. They're not buying into the fact that it's made them complete, right? Which is what he spoke about last week. Now, last week we talked about how legalism can creep in. We talked uh, about how it can manifest itself. The the main two things we looked at last week is that legalism can kind of come forward in our lives and be most obvious whenever our performance is really crappy. Or whenever our performance is seemingly doing very well. Because whenever our performance, our track record, our behavior, our works is just nosediving, it's not doing good, we could do one of two things. We could either vanish, vanish from fellowship, vanish from any kind of devotional life, vanish from anything, or we can double down our works. Well, those works weren't good enough, so I'm going to do more works. I'm going to triple the works. Because I'm going to prove to Jesus that I'm worth saving. Right? So, that's what we can do when the pendulum swings towards one side. Right? And that side is just not performing well. And that feeling in our gut is condemnation. But the pendulum can swing all the way to the other side too. And that's where we're doing works okay. We've put together two or three weeks where we're at least making it to church. Or we've read the Bible or, or whatever you want to put in there. You fill in the blank. And that's where we feel self-righteousness. That's where we feel like, hey, I'm doing pretty good with God, but I deserve to be doing good with God. Because I'm a pretty big deal. And I've put together three weeks where I've not looked at anything bad online, or I've spent time in the Word every morning. And so what we do is we we prop ourselves up by our own performance and our works, and we end up with self-righteousness. Well, that's a sin too. So we get caught up on this wild ride, this pendulum swing, back and forth, back and forth. We're a Pharisee on both sides. It's a sin on both sides. We talked about that a little bit last week, right? 
Now, if last week we looked at how legalism shows up, this week I want to look at why. Why does it show up? Where is the allure? What is the draw? Why do we want to be legalists so much? Because deep in our heart we really do. I'm going to prove that to you here in a minute. But the Paul, what he does is he asks this question. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He's dumbfounded. Why are you submitting to the very thing that you got broke free from? And we, we cracked those shackles off and Jesus did something so amazing that you broke out of prison. Why are you going back to prison? Why are you submitting to things that held you in captivity for so long? Why are you trying to gain favor by performance if you died to gaining favor by performance? Here's another way of asking it. If you call on Jesus who behaved perfectly in order to join you to God, then why do you try to behave perfectly in order to join yourself to God? Here's another way to ask it. If you say you have died to legalism as a way to real life, then why do you obey legalism in order to gain real life? How about this one? If you say Jesus plus nothing equals everything, then why are you adding things to Jesus? Here's my last way of saying it. I'm trying to say the same thing over and over again. If God rescued you from law and regulation as a taskmaster, then why on earth are you returning and obeying that very same taskmaster? A lot of this message today, I'm going to be saying some things repeatedly in very different ways because I'm hoping that something, you grab something, you grab some of this. It's important. You know, there's a lot of shows on TV right now dealing with intercessions. An intercession is basically where you've got someone that's hooked on meth or something. They're an alcoholic and the situation has gotten so bad and so out of control that loved ones, parents, a girlfriend, a husband, someone is having to step in and say enough is enough. You're surrounded by love. You have everything you need right here. We're going to take drastic measures. You're not doing this anymore. There's a deep intercession. And it, it, it intrigues people. So we tune in, we watch it. There's a lot of shows on right now. But typically in one of these shows, and I've only seen like one or two, I'm not like an expert, but they'll show like a before after picture. Here's Jack, his junior year in high school, backup quarterback, and he's all bronze and got a lot of meat on. He looks happy, friends all around. And here's Jack four years later, after he dropped out of college. You know, he's living with six people in a crack house, and his face is all sunken, and, you know, he's looked pale, saggy eyes, and just a bad situation. And we look at that and we think, oh, my goodness, poor addict. Poor addict. I mean, don't you see what this is doing to you? I mean, don't you see that all you got to do is just kick this habit, kick this slavery, have everything you need around you. You look so worn out. They look so horrible. They look so just burned. You know, we look at that and it's easy for us. But the truth is, spiritually, this is me. This is us. This is you. With legalism. Legalism can do that to us. We need intercession. The good news is, is God has already given us an intercession in Christ. Now, legalism is what we talked about that a little bit last week. Very quickly, if you, if you don't remember or you weren't here, legalism is just where we try to self-atone ourselves. Where we don't feel like the atonement that God gave us in Jesus is good enough, so it needs some extra mustard 
So we hang ourselves up on a cross right next to him or instead of him because we think that if we could just help Jesus out with our good works and it makes us especially favored and especially acceptable in his sight. That's roughly what it is in a nutshell, right? But it makes us shriveled up. It makes us look like we need an intervention and we do because we can get really addicted to our own works. I mean, think about those shows. You have a parent looking at a kid saying, God, you... You look so horrible. Don't you understand? Everything you need, you're surrounded by right now. Everything you need is around you right now. Why are you selling out to such a cheap drug? But isn't Paul saying the same thing to the Colossians right now? Don't you have everything you need in Jesus Christ? You're totally complete in Jesus Christ. Why are you selling out to law, to legalisms? Why are you submitting to regulations? You know... Now, in this passage, in verse 16, Paul mentions five items. They're all Jewish. So that's why I wanted to focus, especially today, on just the hardliner aspect of what was going on in this church. Because I think it really helps us here in Knoxville. He mentions food. He mentions drink. um, New moons. Sabbath days. uh, Festival days. You could collapse that and just say it was all about diet and days. Okay, those were the five items that Paul had brought up. And I could hear and listen, this, this is still going on today, but can you just put yourselves in the shoes of this young Christian church? Pretend you don't know anything about the Bible, the Old Testament, you're not a Jew. Let's pretend you're a Gentile, which is just a non-Jew. Every time you see that in the Bible, it means non-Jew. You're a Gentile, and you have these Jews. They come in, oh, they look so smart. Because they have so much of the Bible memorized, the first five books. Oh, Gentile, it's so good to have you among us. It's so good to have you in our fold. You know, we love Jesus and you love Jesus. Isn't this great? But, let me tell you, God always had it in His plan. It's not just about Jesus, understand. God always had things from the beginning in His Bible that were special and dedicated special days that we honor God with and special foods that we abstain from. And so even though it's all about Jesus, I mean, if you really want to please God, you would obey the things that He's established since the beginning. These are things that He called special. Who are you to call them not special? You know. Now listen, if you're a young Christian and you heard that, it scare the crap out of you. It would me. I'd be like, oh gosh, I don't know enough. <laughs> I don't even know what all this stuff means. I don't know what a special day is. I mean, what foods are we allowed to eat then? Help me out. Help me out. This is what's going on. See how confusing that might be? Because indeed there are special things God has set up. There were some days that were devoted, some foods you stayed away from. That's undeniable. God did do that. And people today, they are still confused by this, are they not? People today are still... I mean, it is not left. This heresy is not left. It is still right in the church. People spiritually believe that pork is still offhand. I mean, you cannot touch pork. Why? I don't know. It says in the Bible, it's an unclean animal. And you're like, are you serious? I mean, not, not really. I mean, it does, but... I mean, you understand why it says that, right? There are people that are confused. They're still waiting for Israel to build a temple. They still think that if you celebrate the Sabbath, it needs to be on a Sunday or a Saturday. I don't know. I can't ever keep it straight. But there's a special day where you're supposed to have the Sabbath. And if you don't Sabbath on that specific day, then you're blowing it. And you're accepted, maybe, but not as accepted as if you did all of those things. It is still out there today. (laughs) You know, I remember once as a young pastor, I think I was, 
oh, maybe two years old as a pastor, as a pastor, not as a Christian. And I'm driving around in my cool Ford Escort in Lubbock, Texas, and I'm listening to AM radio, which is a dangerous thing to do in West Texas sometimes. It was a preaching station. And this guy was preaching about how the Sabbath was supposed to be, and I don't even remember what day. It was either a Sunday or a Saturday. Like I said, I can't keep it straight. He said, you need to be keeping it Sabbath on this day. And he, man, he laid it out. And he laid scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture and laid out this beautiful, logical argument. And I remember driving going, oh, crud. What am I missing? I mean, he was laying it out there. He was laying it well. He was selling it good. I was a pastor of two years, three years. How confusing is it for anyone else that maybe not be a pastor? That's what's going on in the church. And it's happening today, right? That's why I like how Paul says this in verse 17. These, naming these five items, diet or days, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. I'm so glad he chased that with that. We need to hear that. You know, we talked about circumcision last week and the fact that that was actually a physical circumcision, right, was pointing towards a spiritual circumcision, which is what Paul talked about in the passage just previous to this one. Okay? Maybe not one where we lacerate the flesh with physical hands, but with spiritual hands, God lacerates the old man off of us, the old spiritual sin life off of us. It was a beautiful picture for us. In both cases, we enter a new nation. One was a physical nation. Spiritual circumcision is a spiritual nation. And so we looked at that. And you know, originally, God's people, they were set apart because of diet and days. It was a distinctive among them. They had special things they honored that the other nations didn't honor. That's a fact. But we have Jesus today that does that. Jesus is the rudder that makes us distinctive from other peoples. It's Jesus Christ. So all these things are fulfilled. So think about it. You have manna. You know, you have this young, wandering tribe of Israel. This young nation going in the desert. They've got no food. That's a problem. There's upwards, canting man, woman, and child, and sometimes servants. There could have been as many as two million people waltzing around in that desert. There were any food. Imagine how much food that takes. Someone worked that out. You could find that online, how much food that takes a day. It's ridiculous. They didn't have it. So God starts dropping it from the sky. This wafer-like bread, and they're eating it. That's pretty great, because what was it doing? It was sustaining them. But what was that a picture for? Jesus, who later would say, I am life. Partake of me. You know, as we take, as we take the communion later, it's a very beautiful picture of that. What, what about water? I mean, the same wandering nation, and you've got Moses striking a rock with his rod, and water comes out of it. And I don't even know how that worked. Don't ask. But water's coming out, and everyone's drinking out of it because they didn't have water that they needed out there. What does Jesus say later on to the Samaritan woman? You could drink this water all day long. But if you drink of my water, living water, you'll never thirst again. What about the temple? God, God builds something among his people. Or he, he said, build this, and this is what I'm going to live in among you guys. This is where I'm going to come and I'm going to habitate here. This will be where I stay in my nation. Where is the temple today? Is it built with physical hands? No. It's built with spiritual hands. We, you, are the temple. God inhabits you. Christ is among us, right? Circumcision. 
All these things, they're all fulfilled in Christ. They're all magnified in Christ. I mean, the Old Testament is littered with things that point to the fulfillment, which is Jesus Christ. That's how we read the Old Testament. We don't read the Old Testament trying to figure out what it means, like we need some decoder ring. We read it through the lens of the Gospel, and it helps us understand what circumcision is about. Who's, how are you going to figure that out without Jesus? I mean, are you serious? Circumcision? How are you supposed to figure out all, the Sabbath days and all these things? It's difficult. But it's easy to grab onto these little things and make our whole world about that instead of the one that they're pointing to. It'd be like me making out with a picture of my wife instead of making out with my wife, you know? I mean, she is the fulfillment of what the picture is promising, right? That's what these Jews were doing. Not really, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) And what Paul does is he does admit that it does look good, doesn't he? He says that at the very end. He says, hey, it does look like it could stop sin. It does look like it could stave off the flesh. But it's smoke in its mirrors. It's an illusion. I mean, the truth is, is you could have never drank a beer in your whole life. You could have never had a piece of bacon. And because you might be as confused as me, you could probably take Saturdays and Sundays off as a Sabbath and be just uber spiritual. You could do all of those things and still be dead man's bones inside. Because these things that we attach to Christ are not suitable to put down the flesh. Only Christ is suitable to put down the flesh. Right? That's why he told the Pharisees, you guys are clean on the outside, you're just crud on the inside. You're sleaze on the inside. It's true. Now, Pharisees, they needed a rescue. We need a rescue. We need an intervention. Maybe not from a substance. Maybe not from meth. But from self-salvation, yes. Right? From self-salvation, yes. Now, I want to focus, like I said, on the why. I'm starting to build the case on why I believe we are so attracted to being legalists. Right? I think it's more than just a draw or magnetism in us to be kind of pharisaical. I think it's more than that. I think it's inside of us. The Bible talks about how it's just ingrained in us. It's part of our spiritual DNA. Spiritually, genetically, you are disposed to being a legalist. Your default, your factory settings, I guess you could say, are to be a Pharisee. It's in us. We really can't help it. We really can't help it. Christ came to save us from it. I think one of the reasons we like that is it gives us control. Think about it. It gives us control. To, to have God love you and accept you because of your works, it almost promises that it's attainable, doesn't it? Doesn't it just seem like if you just got your stuff together, you could actually probably pretty much impress God. I mean, if all i got to do is not do the things on this list and do the things on this list, then God's cool with me and I get a big cookie. Right? I mean, isn't that what it feels like? But it never delivers, does it? It never delivers. Adam. Think about it. I mean, you could take it from the beginning. Adam. He added to God's perfect plan. He wanted to start a self-salvation project. But ultimately, all he's saying is, I want control. I want control. This wandering young nation I brought up earlier, they got tired of walking around the desert. They got tired of meandering in circles. And they said, oh, that we could go back... To Egypt. Oh, that we could, oh, the land of leeks and onions. Doesn't that sound good? You know? That we could go back and be there. What were they saying? I want control. They were saying, we want control. I don't want to rely on manna and water from a rock. I don't want to rely on his leadership, pillars of fire and cloud. I want 
control. What about when it wasn't such a young nation anymore? It was a little bit more established. We don't want God to be our king. We want our own king. We want him to have skin and a scepter and a throne. and pe- We want a flesh and blood king like all the other nations. What are they saying? We want control. And what is he talking to at the church of Colossae? These, these hardliners who are just bear-hugging all the things that they used to call dear as far as works and regulations and rules and things like that. What are they ultimately saying? They're saying Jesus isn't enough. I have to have other things smaller than Jesus to add to Jesus. I want control. They're saying the same thing. We're all saying the same thing. Today we say the same thing. We today want to earn our own salvation. I mean, yeah, we admit that Jesus was necessary. We admit that, okay, needed to be a suitable sacrifice. I get it. Blemishless lamb. I totally get that. But, but, if I just do these things good enough, then I can get a promotion in the accepted category. I could become not just favored, but more favored. Right? Because we want to prove that we are worth it. We were worth being saved. What are we saying? I want control. It's always control. I want control. Now, why, why, once again, are we attracted to this? Why do we want to be in control so bad? Why do we default back to being pharisaical? I'll tell you, I think it's one big reason. One big reason. And it has a million babies. Okay? But at least there's one big reason. And that is is because when we flee the gospel and pursue legalism, we become the star. We become the center. We become the middle. Now, when I say flee the gospel, I mean, ultimately what I'm saying in the gospel is that Jesus came as the God-man through a virgin, lived among us perfectly, being tempted in every way, but flawless in the fact that he never failed, was murdered by the hands of man, put up on the cross, right? Took a punishment, aimed at you, paid a debt that there was no way you could, you could pay. Cosmically, you were unable to pay it. Right? He did that to make enemies friends, to seal a peace treaty that God originated towards us out of his benevolence. He did this. He died a real death. It wasn't a fake death. He really died. They pulled him off of that, stuck him in a tomb. God raised him into newness of life by the power of his Holy Spirit. He comes out, teaches the apostles, right, and those who are following him, ascends to the right hand of God, where he ultimately had originated from, right? Then promising that he will come back again on a white horse in the end of all ends when everyone is gathered and everyone's collected and as it says in the Lord of Rings all things sad are made untrue in this beautiful finale that's the gospel. Why do we flee that? Why do we head away from that? It's so that we could be big. So that we could be the center. That's ultimately why we do it. We are drawn to the idea of reality being about us. And we are so drawn to it that we even want to control how God sees us. Think about that. We even want to control how God sees us. Now, the truth is, for all of us legalists, we try to escape the gospel because really it makes us disappear. It erases us. It buries you. It hides you. And we hate that. (laughs) We hate that. We hate to be tiny, don't we? I mean, there's a new hero king, and it's not you. (laughs) And it's not me. There's a new star, 
in the narrative, in the show. It's not you, and it's not me, and we hate this. The reality is, is there is a story, and it's a beautiful one. And the climax has nothing to do with you. The setting has nothing to do with you. It's about Christ. I mean, doesn't, isn't it, aren't you embarrassed for people whenever you go to a birthday party and someone is really trying to get everyone's attention and they're, they're just the me monster. It's all about them and they just want to talk. They want everyone to look at them, fawn on them, ask them questions and it's not their birthday. <laughs> it's somebody else's birthday but they're just me and they're just drawing all the attention towards themselves. What about a wedding? Ooh, that's bad. Isn't there some rule you're not supposed to like outdress the bride or is that a rule? I just made okay. All right. Like at a reception or something? Okay, in general. In general. <laughs> Never outdress the bride because it's all about her. She's the star of the show, right? Doesn't need to be about you. Or what if about a funeral? Ooh, how inappropriate. A funeral? I mean, you'd it'd be awkward. You'd feel awkward for these people, right? You would. I mean, who's, who's been downtown in the last two weeks? Is the skating rink there? They started, okay, they started assembly on it. Last year, when they had that skating rink downtown, I mean, that thing is tiny. It's like a driveway, it feels like. It's just, it's like NASCAR on ice. It's just like a circle. You're always turning. It's like at no point can you go straight. You're always turning on that little rink. And I remember kind of watching last year, and it's, and it's the same people. You got like little kids, you got parents, you got cute couples. Everyone's either holding someone's hand or they're holding the handrail. You know what I'm saying? But everyone's just kind of going in a circle. Well, last year, there was this girl in the middle, and she was the deal. I mean, she had all of her gear on, the sequins, and she's pulling, like, triple axles in the middle of that thing. And it was just wrong. <laughs> she's going to wipe a kid out eventually. You know, eventually they had to say, hey, hey, ma'am, can you, like, not do the... The blades in the air. Can you not do triple axles? We have little kids. Because there's nowhere for her to even land the things. It was just inappropriate. It didn't even make sense. It didn't even make sense. We can be that. We can be that spiritually. Spiritually. We can walk that through. You see, legalism makes him tiny. And it exaggerates our contribution. Right? But the gospel makes us tiny. And it erases our contribution. Think about that. I'm going to say it again. Legalism makes him tiny and exaggerates our contribution. But the gospel makes us tiny and erases our contribution. Very big distinction. Very big. We hate being tiny. All right, Luke. So, Luke, if I agree that Jesus is the hero, he's the king, he's the center of the story, and that our worth and our value is caught up with him... And that his performance, beautiful as it was, renders ours totally useless. Then does it mean that we don't do things anymore? Now these are good questions. Think about it. I mean, am I still not performing by living a good Christian life? If I obey Jesus and discipline myself to avoid sin at all costs, am I not still being a legalist? Right? I mean, Luke, when is following statutes and rules and laws, when is that legalism? And when is it just a Christian trying to be a good Christian? Right? It depends on why you're doing it. I mean, why are you doing good things? You know, Jesus cared about why you do good things. He he cares about why it is 
that you might take a Sabbath. He cares about why it is that you might give a lot of money to something. He cares about why it is that you tell somebody about the cross. Preach the gospel. Believe it or not, He cares about why you do that. I think in doing really good things, some of us need to repent for doing it to glorify ourselves, for being legalists and doing it. We don't talk about that very much at all. We think that it's all about whether you do good things or bad things. Okay? What if you do good things for a bad reason? That's no better in Christ's eyes. I mean, if you don't drink a beer, why? There are good reasons. Why is yours? If you don't eat pork, why? If you take a Sabbath every week, great. Why? Why do you have an accountability partner? Why do you show up to church? Why do you have a devotional time with the Lord? Do you, I mean, do you understand it matters why we do things? There'll be two reasons that we do a good thing. It will either be in order to win favor with God and people, or it will be to image the fact that we have favor with God. You're either doing it to grab favor from God, or doing it to image and demonstrate that you've already got favor. That's a big distinction. You'll either do good works to prove to God that you're not so bad after all, or you'll do it to celebrate the fact that you were horrible and Christ wasn't. He was the only white hat. We all had black hats on. He came to do His thing on the cross because there was no thing that we could do that was suitable, that was adequate. Right? You'll either do good works to the glory of God or you will do it to the glory of yourself. And yes, God does care. Yes, He does care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two big examples and then we're done. I, I Just to try to put some skin on it, because this can be confusing. And when, uh, uh, when I was getting my arms around the fullness of what the gospel really was, and how it was calling me not to inactivity, but to activity that was gospel-fueled, these were hard things for me to kind of cycle through. It took me a while, right? So I'm going to give you a couple examples, and we'll continue to work through it in the future. But let's take the Sabbath, right? I take a Sabbath. I take it every week if I can. If I can. I love the Sabbath. I don't take it on a Sunday or a Saturday. I take it on a Monday, believe it or not. I like it because I could sleep in. I could think deep. I could breathe deep. I could read longer, study longer, pray longer, journal. I could go out in nature, run, air it out. I need that time, right? I do it to the glory of God. Now, I could have two motives in doing it. This is where we try to learn what the distinctives are. I can either do it to image God's goodness. And I can do it with the posture of, I'm already accepted, I'm already favored. This gets me no brownie points. He loves me as a son, whether I take this day as a Sabbath or not. But I'm taking the Sabbath. Now, if I do that, the Sabbath serves me. The Sabbath serves me. And it glorifies God. Or there could be a second motive. The second motive is this. Now I'm trying to impress God with my strict adherence and sacrifice by taking a day out of seven. And I'm going to do this. But it's because I'm trying to improve my stature with Him. Like an employer, where I'm trying to get a promotion. I'm trying to be more accepted, more favored. And if I do that, I'm serving the Sabbath now. And it glorifies me. Do you see the rails switching? You see how it stops. In one, Jesus is the hero and glorified, and in the other, I am glorified and I am the hero. I'm still working. I'm still accomplishing. In one, the Sabbath serves me and God is made famous. In the other, I serve the Sabbath and I am made famous. You see how that works itself out? 
One is I am trying to impress God by my performance or I state, believe, and love the fact that Jesus impressed God with His performance. You see, performance was necessary, but it was perfect. And it wasn't one that I could do. And it's not one that you can do. That's why He was necessary. That's one. What about this one? I strive and I work and I toil at being missional. Or, or all that means is being intentional with gospel living. Trying to make as many relationships as possible with people that I might demonstrate or proclaim, or both, either quickly or over time, the gospel. Right? It's just intentional gospel living. We just say it's being missional or being on God's mission. I work hard at that. I mean, I really do. I mean, I strive and I toil at that. Well, why? I'm not trying to do it so I can outcompete the next pastor or church, whatever that means. I'm doing it because my flesh says, don't do it. I'm striving and I'm working because my flesh says, don't, Luke. Don't talk to them. Just keep it inside. It's comfortable there, you know? I mean, that's what I want to do. I'm no different from you. I just, I don't want to talk to people, you know? I don't want to. I don't want to hear their mess. I don't, if I want to be honest with you, my flesh doesn't want anything to do with anyone else's mess. I got my own mess. But that's not God's mission. And that's not really who He's created me to be, Right? So I have to work hard. I'm toiling. Now, I, I, could, I could do this with two motives. One of the motives is, is I want to impress God and win favor and acceptance. And the more people I tell about the cross, about the gospel, the more people I bring it to, the more God loves me. The more He's impressed with me. And now I'm really secure. Now I can't lose my salvation. Now I'll always be saved because He really loves me. Because I've, I've told a lot of people about Jesus. Right? The other intent is this. My toiling, my striving, and being intentional with the gospel. All I'm doing is I'm imaging the fact that Jesus was toiling and striving as He came to earth in His life and on the cross. I'm just mimicking, I'm celebrating what Jesus did for us. Now when I tell people about the gospel, it's not some chore that I do to make a pastor happy or I do to fill out an equivalency on the back of a book. It's not some weird thing that I do because I feel like I have to, like I'm obligated to. It's a worship that I get to do. I actually enjoy Believe it or not, listen, hear me clearly. I enjoy telling people about Jesus. I enjoy it. But the reason I enjoy it is because I'm already fixed in the fact that God loves me, has saved me, and won't let me go. If I was confused on that any, and I wanted to work as hard as I could to get to that place, well, then this becomes a chore. It just becomes legalism. It becomes one more thing of works that I do to make God happy with me. Do you see the distinction? You're preaching the gospel in both cases. Is that bad, Luke? I mean, Luke, I thought preaching the gospel was always good. It is always good. You're right. But you need to repent if you're doing it as a Pharisee. It's important that when you preach the gospel, you actually believe it. Other people might believe it even if you don't. Okay, But it's important that you do. It's a whole lot more fun. Right? Now, I will say that to repeat something I've said a million times already today, the gospel makes us small and it celebrates Him. It celebrates Him. But law and legalism, it's going to make Him small and it's going to celebrate you. These are the questions. These are the distinctives you need to keep in your mind as you do things. It's what separates you from being a legalist or a Christian. 
or a Christ-centered Christian, I'll say that. A gospel-centered Christian. Why do you do the things you do? The gospel, this is tough for me. The gospel erases me in my contribution. Ha! <sighs> it makes me disappear. It buries me. That struggled with that. As a young, 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 young college student, when I first came to know the Lord, I struggled with the fact that I was going to be buried with Christ. The fact that my identity was going to be wrapped up in His. Because we're all so self-intoxicated and fascinated with ourselves and our own identity. We don't want it to be mixed or mingled with anybody else's. Nonetheless, Jesus's, you know? But the fact is, is we're buried with Jesus, and it's good for you. That's how God sees you, by the way. It's good that we're buried with Christ. Okay? But it erases you. Sorry for that. It buries you. It changes your identity and your role. Alexander McLaren says, There is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us, and it is the power of the indwelling Christ. I agree. I'll tell you, some of us are doing great things for very legalistic reasons, and that's a denial of the gospel. And it's so subtle, we don't even see it a lot of times. Right? I think we, as a church, I think me, as a believer, we need an intervention. My factory settings says impress God as if he was a principal in a school or an employer that I'm just as hard as I can trying to make him like me more. You know, I tell you, one of the most powerful images for me regarding this teaching that we see in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son and the father. Right? You have, and I'm not even going to go through the whole story. I just want to focus in on one Polaroid shot of this story. And it's where the son realizes, man, I've really screwed up. I had it pretty good with dad at home. I've, I've squandered all of this stuff. I've, I've no money left. I'm eating what the pigs are eating. And he starts remembering, man, those servants, they were eating pretty good. I'm going home. <laughs> I'm going home. Of course, the father has been watching He's sitting on the stoop of the house looking. As soon as he sees his son, boom, he's gone. Picks up his robe, he runs. He meets his son, and he knew his son had already prepared a speech about what he was going to tell his dad. Just let me be a servant. His dad wouldn't even let him finish his sentence. He wouldn't even let him finish his prepared monologue of, Oh, Father, I have hurt you so much, Father, and I have taken all of your money, Father. He didn't even let him do that. He just basically was telling him, without so many words, this is ridiculous, you'll never be a servant, you'll always be a son. You see, if you were a son of the king, if you were a son or a daughter, if you were a Christian, you were fully accepted. You were fully and highly favored, and there's nothing you can do to alter that. You were secure. Well, Luke, how do you know? Because it was by his doing and not yours. If you didn't do anything, you didn't have anything to do with being born again, you've got nothing to do with losing it. You have nothing to do with getting it. You've got nothing to do with losing it. It's very true. It's very safe for you. That should change how you do things. That should change why you do things. It makes a difference next time you tell someone about Christ. Next time you do something noble. I don't know. Whatever it is. Fill in the blank. I won't even try. Next time you do that, what is the foundation of that? Is the foundation the fact that you're secure, that Christ loves you? Or is, this, or is the foundation, I'm still trying to get God to think I'm not so bad? I'm still trying to convince Him that I'm worth saving. There's a big difference, right? I need an intervention. I've needed one, and I'm glad the, the name of our intervention is Jesus. 
he was an intervention to us because we were so stooped in our addiction with ourselves. We had to be shook free from it. And we have everything we need in him. He makes us totally complete, as Paul said last week. Everything is complete in him. That's the beauty and the power and the strength of the cross.